It's great to be with you this morning on the Lord's Day and in worship with you and also on the uh, occasion of this lecture, uh, timely, with uh, Martin Luther King Day coming tomorrow for us to think about this subject of the gospel and race. Uh, my own journey in this area has been gradual. Uh, I, I am uh, no, by no means enlightened uh, in this area. And let me just give you some background on that. I was born in uh, South Carolina, uh, the state that began the Civil War uh, with uh, the attack on Fort Sumter. Uh, I grew up in the home of an eighth generation Southern Presbyterian ruling elder. Uh, I was often treated to uh, devotionals at night that consisted of readings from the Bible and Lee's lieutenants. So the, the southern heroes of the past were very much a part of my upbringing as they were for many, many uh, southerners uh, of my generation. And uh, racism was not something that I considered to be a part of my world, though I, I probably uh, had embraced some sort of a mild version of the lost cause uh, uh, view of American history. Uh, but when I came back from uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, where I'd been doing my doctoral work at about the age of 29 years old and went to Jackson, Mississippi for the first time, I'd never been to Mississippi in my life until I went to uh, become a professor at uh, Reform Seminary, uh, I, the very first course that I was asked to teach was pastoral and social ethics. And so I was trying to think of various social ethical issues that I needed to address. And so the whole panoply of issues relating to gender, marriage, and sexuality uh, were things that we would address, just war uh, theory and things of this nature. But it never occurred to me that racism might be one of the things that I should talk with my students about, even though uh, the year after I got to the seminary, we had had a student go to a church in a southern state and, uh, had, and, and had a young African-American uh, boy that had uh, come to faith in Christ and wanted to join the church and the elders of the church said we don't accept black people in our church. Uh, so now, e even with things like that still happening uh, around me in the late 1980s and early 1990s, it did not occur to me to address the issue of racism. And I, I think actually that describes a lot of people. A lot of people think that racism is a problem of the past and it's no longer a problem of the present. And it's something that, uh, that we uh, can acknowledge once happened, but it no longer is really a major issue of concern in the culture. The only people that are, um, that are talking about it are uh, people that have political agendas or they have, um, uh, you know, they have Marxist agendas or, or uh, some kind of, a, of an underlying uh, thing that they're trying to push and, and therefore they're talking about race. And what started changing my understanding of that was simply contact with godly uh, African American friends. Now, let me, let me quickly say, racism is not something that is, uh, that is simply unique to the American experience and to American white people and to blacks. We could, for instance, we, we have, RTS has a work in Indonesia. And uh, Indonesians, uh, are, there's a tension between Indonesians of Chinese ethnic descent 
and Indonesians who are not of Chinese ethnic descent, because the Indonesians of Chinese ethnic descent tend to be the leaders in society, in finance, in government, etc. And the Indonesians of non-Chinese ethnic descent, there, there's, there's tension there. So we could actually go all around the world and talk about ways that race interacts with culture and religion, but I, I'm picking on me because this is my experience growing up in the American South and because we're all part of this American experience. But more than that, because I'm really not going to talk about the culture, I, I want to talk about the church. I want to talk about how we as Christians can be good neighbors. I want to talk about this issue in a way that we bring people together. That part of that involves repentance, but most of it involves learning how to be a good neighbor. To one another. Uh, in, the, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, when God calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and makes him the father of his people, one of the things that he says to him is that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are recipients of those Abrahamic promises and obligations. And so it ought to be our desire to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And we ought to want to have brothers and sisters, men and women, boys and girls, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation as a part of the visible church in which we participate as a, as a picture of what the glory of heaven is going to be like in the future. And so we want to address some of the things that might be keeping us from experience that, that kind of thing right now. Now, what, it, it's very easy, for instance, to identify slavery in, the, in that era of American history with racism. Uh, American slavery was uniquely bad in the annals of slavery because it was chattel slavery that entailed a belief <clears throat> in the personal inferiority of the African slaves who had been captured and kidnapped and transported uh, and brought forcibly to uh, the Western world to serve in South America, Central America, and North America in slavery. And so there was, there was a widespread race-based chattel slavery uh, 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 mentality and theology and philosophy that actually undergirded the practice of American slavery. But as you know, a war was fought over that and uh, slavery was eventually abolished in our culture. And that's why a lot of people will say, well, this is ancient history. You know, this is something long, long ago. This isn't something uh, that we have to deal with today. However, the idea of the social inferiority of now freed African slaves uh, persisted in society and was actually woven into the law and the culture in society. In the Jim Crow era of segregation, all manner of uh, civil and legal things were done to keep the races separate because there continued to be a persistent belief in the social inferiority of these uh, descendants of African slaves. And that's persisted into our own time. I think a lot of people think as long as I don't have racial animus towards another person, I'm not a racist and our culture or the culture and community that I'm in is not racist as long as we don't have some sort of racial animus against someone else. And we don't pause to think about the way that racism has actually been woven into the fabric of our society. 
And, and again, this really didn't hit me until I had close enough friendships with um, African-American Christian friends that they would just level with me about their experiences. And I want to share just a few of those experiences um, with you today. Uh, one, of, one of my friends uh, is a pastor who had um, pastored uh, in the Caribbean before coming back to the Washington, D.C. area to be a pastor. He's originally from North Carolina, and, uh, but he had pastored in the Caribbean and then came back to the United States. And when his son went to school the first day, uh, he, uh, he, he had a good experience at his school, but he came home and he asked his father's, uh, father a question. He said, Dad... Am I an African-American? Now, this is a 13-year-old boy. And um, his father said, it was almost like God talking to Adam in the garden. You remember when God says, who told you that? You know, who told you you were naked? Well, it was a little bit like this. My friend said to his son, who told you that? Who told you that you were African-American? And uh, his son said, well, my teacher did. And uh, his father wisely said, well, Titus, what do you think you are? And he said, I've always thought I was an American. And, uh, you know, I, I, it dawned on me at that point, I'll never have that conversation with my son. My son was the same age as Titus. But there was, a, there was an identity issue that Titus was going to deal with that my son would never deal with. Nobody would ever question whether my son was just an American. Titus's own identity to that point, especially having grown up in the Caribbean, was I'm an American in distinction from all of these various Caribbean cultures, Jamaicans and, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, Caymanians and, and uh, Bahamians and all these other folks that lived there in Grand Cayman where they had where they had been, but now that he was in the United States, he was viewed as an African-American, something that was different, a, a, a subculture or a minority. And so there was, a, there was an issue, there was a layer of identity that I was never ever gonna have to talk with my son about that my, my friend was gonna have to talk to his friend Titus about. On another occasion, Titus, who's a big tall boy like my son, my son's a fair-skinned, red-headed kid and uh, Titus is tall just like Jennings and he was getting ready to go out one day with his hoodie over and his father stopped him and he said, son, take the hoodie off. Because you're big, you're big for your age and you're gonna scare somebody and it could get you killed. And then again, it struck me, I'll never have that talk with my son. Uh, and and if, you, if, if, if you talk with African-American friends, they'll very often say, yes, I've had to have that talk with my children. Uh, very often in, uh, in my kind of circles, the, the circles of, uh, of uh, peoples that I come from, uh, the getting of a driver's license is a, is a thing of celebration. When a child turns 16 or so and gets their driver's license, it's a big deal and people celebrate. But many of my African-American friends have to sit down and have a talk with their children and say, now look, you need to understand how to relate to law enforcement because it could get you killed if you respond in the wrong way. And again, that's not, that's not a talk that I had with my son and, and my daughter uh, when they got their driver's license. Uh, many of my students 
and colleagues uh, and friends who were African-American had been stopped by police for what they called driving while black. Uh, so it's, it's very, very common for our students at RTS in Jackson to be stopped, and interestingly, to be stopped not only by white policemen, but be stopped by black policemen, because most of our police force in Jackson, Mississippi is African-American. But my African-American students are uh, on a hugely disproportionate um, scale stopped by police for no reason whatsoever. Just why are you in this neighborhood? Why, why are you driving your car right now? Uh, and that, that experience is a very different experience uh, that people who look like me often have with the police. One of my professors is Carl Ellis. Uh, he teaches for us mostly in Atlanta and Jackson, but also in Washington, D.C. He and his wife Karen live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and um, Carl's father was one of the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, many of you will know about the, um, the experiment that the American military did with African-American uh, pilots during the Second World War. Well, Carl's father was one of the Tuskegee Airmen that was a part of that. But when he came back from the war, he was not allowed to uh, become a commercial pilot because he was black, which obviously impacted Carl's life, the, 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 the lifestyle that he was able to live, the income that the family was able to uh, experience. And again, that's not something that anybody in my family would have experienced. And then there's the obvious thing, uh, systemically and structurally. In the American South, it was very, very common, uh, especially in the 1950s and 60s uh, and early 70s, during the civil rights era for African Americans to be denied admission or membership to churches for worship. Uh, my, uh, my brother is the clerk of session of his Presbyterian church in Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, he went back and looked at the session records and uh, during the Greenville race riots in 1960-61, the elders of Second Presbyterian Church adopted a resolution that should any black person present himself or herself at the door for admission to the church, that, and it says this in the minutes of the church, they should be told to go find a church for their own kind. Now, that's, that's just 50-something years ago, okay? So there, there, what we see is there are, there are structural things in church and society that have lingered uh, even into our own time, and they have impaired the fellowship of, of the church, and they've often segregated the life of the church. Um, and, it's, it, and it's interesting. In the 1980s and early 90s, we began to see and a, a sort of a reawakening of reformed theology in the African-American community. It's a very positive, happy thing. And we began to see African-Americans be comfortable being around uh, reformed folk that were not from their cultural and ethnic background. But in the 2010s, and especially beginning about 2014, with the tensions that boiled over by, because of events in St. Louis and Baltimore and uh, other places around the country, uh, conflicts with law enforcement and the African-American community, 
there has been a real sense amongst especially younger African Americans that nothing has changed. Attitudes have not changed. Uh, the police still can't be trusted. The culture in the country is still against me. And uh, this is spilled over into the life of the church. And it's, and it's caused many African Americans to feel uncomfortable in what they would call dominantly white spaces. And evangelicalism in general, Bible-believing Christianity, is still very dominantly uh, white. It's, it's not as diverse as the culture around it is in most local church uh, expressions. New York City is probably better off than most places in this regard. Uh, but especially when you get into the suburbs, almost everywhere, uh, you will see these kinds of ethnic and racial uh, groupings play out in the membership of churches. So what do we do about that? What do, what do we do about that? I want to suggest five things real briefly, and then I'll, I'll, I'll finish, and we can talk, and you can ask questions, and I'll do my best to interact with you about these things. The first thing I want to suggest that we need to do about this is to learn. Um, I was involved in a denominational effort first to confess the Presbyterian Church in America's complicity um, in uh, the, 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 the theology that undergirded uh, chattel slavery. Uh, our theological heroes were actually the people that provided the uh, the, the theological rationale for supporting chattel slavery. So uh, Jonathan Edwards is a, is a very famous uh, theologian, an American uh, reformer. He was actually a New England Congregationalist, but a Presbyterian by conviction, and a slave owner. Uh, James Henley Thornwell and Robert Louis Dabney were famous Southern Presbyterian theologians that actually provided the theological rationale for slavery, and they were considered theological heroes for many good reasons uh, by their Presbyterian um, uh, legacy and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and those of us today that look back into the 19th century and appreciate their defense of Orthodox Christian theology in many ways. And that, that was deeply uh, hurtful uh, to many of our <clears throat> African-American ministers and members who felt like here we are celebrating these folks that actually provided the theology uh, for chattel slavery. And then I was involved in an effort to confess our church's com complicity in the civil rights era. Uh, a friend of mine, Lance Lewis, was um, the pastor of a church in Philadelphia before he's now in uh, Sacramento, California, pastoring a church. And he, it's a, it was a multi-ethnic church with a very large African-American membership. And on one occasion, he was working with a, a single mom uh, who had come through a lot of things and uh, had become a believer and was in the membership class getting ready to join the church. And right before he, you know, he had, you know, you, you have the inevitable question that you always have with people that are not from a Presbyterian background. What about this whole predestination stuff? And what about this infant baptism stuff? And they had gotten through all the theological questions that we Presbyterians always get. And finally, at the very end, she said, one last thing. Where did these people stand in the civil rights era? And Lance just kind of, his head just fell. And he said, sister, they weren't with us. And um, so I, I was part of an effort for us to just come clean uh, about how we had failed uh, in, in those areas. 
Um, and it's important for us to learn that history. It's important for us to know that history. Um, our African-American Christian friends know that history. Generally, white Christians don't know that history. And we should just know, we should, know, we should care about the story of our friends. Um, when I was in Scotland, I was the minority. I was an American, and Americans were not thought very highly of. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but, and so one of, the, one of the ways that I got along with my Scottish hosts while I lived there for four years was I cared about their, cultural and, their culture and history. And you know what? They appreciated that. They were a little bit surprised by that, that an American would care about their culture and history. Well, when you care about friends, culture, and history, they generally appreciate about it. So that's something we ought to do. We ought to learn. We ought to want to know the history on these things. Secondly, we ought to pray. Uh, we, we, we want to pray that the church visible here below would look a little bit more like the church above is going to look. We know that on the last day, men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are going to be gathered around the throne worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb. Well, we ought to pray that the church would look a little bit more like that today and that Christians would not be captive to the way that the culture looks at these things, but that we would be driven by the truth, by grace, by God's Word, on these things so that the way we relate would be better than the way that the culture relates on this. Um, uh, my own congregation was involved in a movement back in the 1990s in Mississippi called uh, Mission Mississippi, where black and white Christians all over the state from various church backgrounds got together to try and repair the breaches of relationship that had resulted from 200 years of bad uh, relationships uh, uh, in Mississippi history and really kind of took the lead for the state in that area. Well, Christians ought to be ahead of the culture in the way that we relate to one another, and that means this is something we ought to pray about. It's something that ought to be a, a standard part of our prayers that we ought to pray uh, that, that, that congregationally the Lord would sanctify us in these areas in the way that we relate to one another in the way that we promote racial reconciliation. Third, I think we need to recognize, um, we need to acknowledge that racism is a problem. If we don't acknowledge that racism is a problem, then we, want, uh, we can learn all we want and we can pray all we want, but we won't do the things to do to rectify the problem. Uh, I find that many of my African-American friends are tired of having to explain themselves on this. And, uh, and, and they, they feel like uh, people in the dominant culture just put the burden on them to justify why this is even a, a matter to talk about. Um, and so, again, I, I think we need to learn enough to recognize this is a problem that needs to be addressed. In fact, I, I would say that racism has been, uh, if not the greatest sin collectively in American history, it's at least in the top two. Uh, there are tens of millions of lives have been cost by uh, racism and its effect individually and culturally. And so it's something that we, we need to acknowledge and admit how big of a challenge it is. Then the fourth thing that I would say, and this is, hugely important for all of us is to relate, make 
friends with people who are different from you. Don't underestimate the power of friendship. This whole issue will remain abstract until you meet and befriend a person whom you care about who is different from you and can give you a different perspective on this issue from your own. I'm thinking right now of Bryant Taylor, who is an African-American elder at the Redeemer Church in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, Bryant is such an encouragement to me in this whole area, and he gives me eyes that I wouldn't have uh, for myself on these things. And frankly, he saves me from well-meaning bungling uh, all the time in this area. I remember when a number of young folks were talking about sins of the past that had come to light, and Bryant said to me, I don't really care about what happened 50 years ago. I'm far more concerned about what's happening right now. And that was really good for me to hear uh, from, this, uh, from this wise man who is a leader in his local congregation. So I have benefited hugely from those kinds of interactions, pastor friends that are different from me, elders that are different from me, congregation members who are different from me. And so we need to start deliberately seeking cult to cultivate friendships uh, with godly believers who look different from us and who've had different cultural experiences because of their ethnicity, their color, etc. cetera. Uh, maybe there's someone in your congregation who's of, a di- who's of a different race and you know one another, but you really haven't spent significant time together, you haven't had a serious conversation, invite that person to coffee or to breakfast or lunch or have their family over for dinner. That's a natural, organic way to deepen relationships that you already have, but be intentional about it. We don't naturally gravitate to people that are different from us. We naturally gather in similar groups. So do something unnatural or rather supernatural to break the cycle of sameness that hinders this kind of racial unity that we can have. Think like a missionary or a church planter or a campus minister um, and be deliberately on the lookout to make friendships and connect with people for the sake of the gospel and apply that logic very deliberately to interracial friendship. And then finally, commit. Um, Commit to this issue as a part of your personal and congregational sanctification. Determine to grow in your cultural intelligence uh, with regard to the experiences of ethnic minorities in your church and in your community. Learn from godly Christians who are already engaged in uh, promoting racial reconciliation and Christian unity and solidarity across racial lines. Um, Consider asking people from ethnic minorities in your community their impression of your church. Uh, My congregation had been working very hard to reach out to our neighborhood, and our neighborhood's very diverse, but what we didn't realize is we had a reputation. And that reputation actually prevented us from being as effective as we could have been in reaching out to the varying kinds of folks in our community. And we had to face our reputation before we were very effective in in saying to people, this is actually a safe place for you to come. We actually want you to be here. I know that you have heard things about this congregation over the past, and we want you to, I mean, very much like your pastor stood up this morning and said, if you're an unbeliever, we're glad to have you here. 
there are people that, that, that they think, well, I'm, a, I'm an unbeliever, I'm a skeptic, I'm a sinner, I'm not wanted here at Central Presbyterian Church. And your pastor said, we want, we want you here. We, we want you here, hearing the Word of God in our fellowship so that we can display to you and witness to the grace of God in Christ. Well, so also there are people from various backgrounds who may be scared to be a part of your fellowship and congregation. And you want to be asking the question, what's our reputation? Um, you may want to examine patterns and language and culture within your congregation that may erect barriers to other races. You, you want to be prudent and sensitive uh, in uh, the way you address certain things. I, I thought it was wonderful how it was woven into the service today, even in the sermon references uh, with, with Martin Luther King uh, Junior Day tomorrow, there were references in the sermons that, get, that gave not only tied to the text, but indicated that this was a congregation that was concerned about these sorts of issues of justice. So all of these things are ways that you can commit to working towards solidarity amongst Christians from various ethnic backgrounds. And um, it's my hope that Christians will do a better job, not just with our lips, but with our lives and our actions in showing the unity that Jesus has given to his church through the Holy Spirit in practical, tangible ways so that we live and minister together in joy and unity for the sake of gospel witness to the world. Thank you for listening to me this morning. Let's have time for question and answer. Yes, sir. Yes. Black people at the door to go somewhere else. I'm wondering if the same person research found in later minutes when that church changed its policy and said we're going to let them come and at least attend our church. Yep. Sadly, he did. And, and, and I say sadly, and I'll tell you the story. He, he discovered, and, and this, was, this was probably two years ago, so what, what does that make it? About 2018. He discovered that there had been African-American uh, African members in the church uh, for about 20 years, so late 90s, early 2000s, but that the policy had never been rescinded. It had simply been forgotten. And that in and of itself is a picture, okay? And, it, and, it, and, and that's one reason why you'll often hear people say, why are we dredging all this stuff up from the past? It's time to move on. When we still have artifacts of the segregation in our churches that have been left unaddressed. The church had, had been multi-ethnic for 20 years and people had forgotten what they had done in the past. And so he urged the elders to renounce and repeal uh, the policy, which they finally did. But 20 years after it had been effectively changed, uh, and, but, but forgotten. So, yes, sir. Thank you, brother. Yes. Great. Amen. Amen.
Yeah. That's good. That's wonderful. I, and I would not um, in any way, by using the term friendship, want to diminish any of the significance that we are dealing with brothers and sisters in the same family. Uh, what I mean by that, though, is often uh, brothers and sisters in Christ can be acquaintances with people from, from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds and never deepen into a real friendship. So, I mean, Bryant will, Bryant knows me well enough and loves me well enough that he'll actually confront my sin about things. And I think only real friends do that. And of course, Bryant does view me as a brother, and I certainly view him as a brother. He is my brother, and I am his brother. But as he's gotten to know me, he's gotten bold enough to say, you missed it, buddy. You know, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, and so that's what I meant by friendship, but amen to your point. You're exactly right. We, we need to approach this. We're not just sort of friends out there in the community. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's a huge resource that we have at our disposal that the world doesn't have. Yes? Right. Oh, thank you so much for, <laughs> for, for throwing me into the briar patch. That's exactly what I want to do is give you other books to read about that. And let me say that is exactly my attitude towards it. Um, and, and let me say generationally, I, I've noticed a couple of things. Folks that have actually lived through some of the brutalities of the civil rights movement, and that's of a certain generation, tend to be more optimistic about race relations in the country. Even with what we've gone through in the last five, three to five years. Younger folks who are now just discovering these things in college, in in, in high school, et cetera, tend to be more discouraged about it. Interestingly, that's why the older folks will say they're less concerned about 50 years ago and more concerned about now, and younger folks will oftentimes say things are worse than they've ever been. So I was with, with uh, Andrew Young and with John Lewis a couple of years ago, both who had gone through the civil rights movement with Dr. King, and they were very, very positive and optimistic about things. But I, I'll meet young college-age African-Americans that are very discouraged about now. And so, uh, and, and very often are focused on the past. So it's a fascinating thing. But I do feel, I felt the same thing. I need to go back and relearn my history on this. So let me, let me give you a couple of resources that I think will be very helpful to you on this. One is a book called Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. And it's subtitled, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America. 
divided by faith, evangelical religion, and the, prob and the problem of race in America. Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, they're sociologists, and they're, they're trying to explore why do evangelical Christians have the attitudes that they do about race? Why do they think that racism is an individual problem, but it's not a social problem, and therefore the church shouldn't uh, ever talk about uh, uh, racism because that's a social problem or that's a, that's a civil problem or a cultural problem, not a spiritual problem. And so that's a very helpful book for sort of getting our head uh, around, around these things. Um, I, let, me, let me think. We're, Jay, do you have anything that you would quickly say um, along the lines of warmth of other sons that have been impactful on you? Yeah. It's very helpful because it's also very, it deals with um, there's practical things that you can do uh, as well. Um, A more recent version, uh, and, and it's more personal testimony, is Dolphus Weary's book, I Ain't Coming Back. Um, Dolphus Weary uh, was uh, a, a young African American in Mississippi during the civil rights era who got a chance to get a, a sports scholarship in California at a Christian university. And he got to California, he had no desire whatsoever to come back to Mississippi and face the kind of discrimination that he and his family had. But under the, the ministry and influence of John Perkins, he felt convicted that he, he was a Mississippian this was his family, his problem, and he needed to come back and be a part of facing it. And so it's Dolphus, InterVarsity Press published it, I Ain't Coming Back, Dolphus Weary, and it's weary just like your soul is weary, W-E-A-R-Y. And uh, he's a, Dolphus is a dear friend. And by the way, the high school that my wife taught in for many years requires the students to read uh, that book. It's a predominantly white high school, and they, they, want, they want their students to understand this perspective. Um, and uh, so I Ain't Coming Back. It's another testimony book like that. Yes, Jay. Um, the, the works of Francis Grimsby, uh, are yes. in the public domain now. He's an African-American minister. He Yeah. 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 That's right. Grimke is fascinating. He was the pastor of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. for about 50 years. He's the son of a slave master and a slave in Charleston, South Carolina. He escapes the South. He goes to Princeton and graduates from Princeton. Graduates from Princeton Seminary 
under Charles Hodge and all the, the great theologians of the Northern Presbyterian Church, and then becomes the pastor at 15th Street Presbyterian Church in, in Washington, D.C. He is one of the founders of the NAACP. And I think people don't realize the Christian roots of the NAACP, but his, um, his 4th of July sermons, um, his, his uh, sermons on uh, occasions of events where uh, various uh, racial issues are being addressed are just outstanding. And again, you can get him free on the internet. There are a lot of people that are working now to get his collected writings back into print. So Log College Press has, has published his little uh, meditations on preaching, but he's got a massive four-volume set that was... Um, edited by Carter Woodson, who did so much of the editing of great African-American works in that era. And there are people that are working to get that in print now. But anything by Grimke will never waste your time. He, he was a very important, his, his, his brother, I think, was the first lawyer for the NAACP, Archibald. And um, so a very, very important voice. And theologically, he is like you. I mean, he, he believes what you believe. Theologically, so he's a person that you're gonna. When you read him, you're gonna go, okay, this I, I, I resonate with this guy. Yes. That's right. Yeah. He also contributed, there was, a, there was a set of essays written um, and put in a book called Glory Road, the, the story of, the, uh, of a number of African Americans that have come to embrace the Reformed faith, but in the course of it, they tell their experiences culturally, um, you know, what it's like to be black and, and, and Reformed in this particular culture, and so you'll get a you'll get good feel a, a good feel for that. Yes. Right. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Uh, there is no question that there is a, there's an academic movement uh, in, in the sphere of higher learning today that is approaching this whole issue with its own anti-supernaturalist, materialist, unbiblical, anti-Christian agenda. 
And that's why it's actually so helpful to point to voices like Francis Grimke, who is profoundly Presbyterian and Christian and theological and rooted in the scriptures addressing these issues because you, you want voices that you have theological confidence in speaking about these things rather than people that don't share an appreciation for the person of Christ, the truth of scripture, the importance of the gospel. And, and by the way, movements like that will never be able to bring people together because they can't grapple with forgiveness. And you know what has been so powerful on the part of Christians in the last decade or so is to see the power of forgiveness on display. So for instance, in, in Charleston, when nine people were killed in the Emmanuel AME church, the power of the people in that congregation standing up and offering forgiveness uh, to someone who didn't know forgiveness just it, 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 it had a profound, it, it, there had been a movement afoot to try and take the Confederate battle flag off of the state capitol grounds in South Carolina for 40 years. And it never, until those people offered forgiveness to Dylan Roof, then overnight the battle flag came down. And what was that? It was the power of forgiveness. People, you know, suddenly people said, those are my people. You know, those are Christians acting like Christians and it changed a lot of hearts. Um, and I actually had, I had friends inside the, the Republican National Committee that were in conversation with the governor of South Carolina at that time who said that flag's got to come down. You saw what those people have, have done. So it's funny how Christians can have an impact in ways that they might not understand if they'll approach it Christianly. And so I, I think there are people, interestingly, President Obama recently sort of um, shook his finger at young people that are, that are, you know, doing the social justice and the woke thing and the, you know, intersectionality and critical theory thing and, and just said, that's a dead end. Uh, well, he can say that. Um, and so the, the more you have shown yourself to be concerned for the appropriate treatment of, of, of people of all ethnicities, and the more concern you show for that in the church, the more moral authority you have to rebut the bad things that are out there uh, circulating on this issue. Um, anytime there's injustice in a society, there will be bad ways of uh, suggestions of rebutting that injustice. And so, you know, we've just got to, we've got to be aware of that, and that's why we want good ways of rebutting the injustice. Yes, thank you. Yes. Absolutely true. 
Well said. Thank you. Yes, sir. Who do you think is the biggest uh, institution or place where people learn this? Oh, um, <clears throat> I, I do think that there are artifacts in our culture of racism that come from places like law and education. For instance, uh, people surveyed American history textbooks for high school students uh, not long ago and were shocked at how something like the era of Reconstruction was addressed. It was addressed from actually a very pro-Southern sort of racist perspective in most American history textbooks. So you can certainly have you know, racist ideas perpetuated in those ways. I think the big way, though, is in families and in communities, okay? You know, at, um, again, my, my father was a wonderful man. Uh, and I'll, I'll never be half the man that my father was, but I, I remember when, when I was in college, I was a tutor for the basketball uh, program at, at my university. And it was, um, it was either Thanksgiving or Christmas, and the basketball team had to stay at university when everybody else got to go home because they had basketball games over the Thanksgiving or the Christmas holidays. So George Singleton and Floyd Creed, George was our center, Floyd was our point guard. They were stuck there in Greenville, nowhere to go for, and again, it was either Thanksgiving or Christmas. So I just said, I'd been, I'd been their tutor for English. Um, and so I said, well, why don't you just come home with me for Thanksgiving? Well, my dad had never had a black person come to the house for Thanksgiving dinner in his life. And he was horrified. Um, and I, and I, and, and, you know, if you had asked me, is your dad racist, I never would have, would have thought that there was any kind of, of uh, racial prejudice in him un, until I realized, boy, he had been taught that you just don't do this in the context of the family. And there had just been, there'd never been a practice that you would bring uh, a, a black person to your house for Thanksgiving dinner or for Christmas dinner, uh, or something like this. And so I think a lot of people just learn it in the context of family and community. And our, if our communities are airtight enough, we don't even think about it. So that's a great question. Yes. So you don't get blamed for us. <laughs> You're off the hook, man. <laughs> Slavery ended. It's, 
Testament was written in from 1929 to 1931 and only published in 2018 because they, they were content there was no market for it. And it is very impactful. It, it, gives, it gave me a perception that I've never, I've, I've wondered about it, but I've yeah. never, never found a resource yeah. And she has other books. Same that would be, by the way, a book similar to the one you were talking about, uh, in terms of the just the the impact. Yeah. If you were if you were not born in the South, you might not be able to understand this yeah. because it was written exactly the way this man spoke English. Yeah. And I'm from the South, so I understood it. Yeah. But it was real impactful. Yeah. That's good. Mm. Mm. That's powerful. I tell you, another one like that is, um, this, this is a hard name, Alauda Equiana, uh, who also went by the name, not much easier, Gustavus Vasa. Alauda, uh, O-L-A-U-D-A-H, Equiano, was an African slave... Who, uh, who, who eventually was freed and became one of the major voices for um, advocating for the ending of the slave trade in the British um, Empire. And he, his autobiography uh, is, is, again, it's, it's Penguin has published it. There are gobs of different editions. You can order it on Amazon or you can read it online. And again, he, theologically, he's, with, he's, he's us, theologically. Um, but his perspective on his experience in this dominantly white world of the British Empire and the slave trade of the Middle Passage and all of that is just something that most of us don't have in our family uh, heritage. So uh, it, it's one of the early, very important slave autobiographies, Alauda Equiano. Um, and it's, you know, I can't remember the, the title of the book, but it's, it's basically his autobiography. Uh, but similar kind of thing that you're talking about. Now, there was another hand. Yes? How did your church Okay, thank you for asking. Let me, let me I'm, I'm going to give you a quick background. In the, in the pray-ins, the, the pastor um, mentioned the sit-in this morning in the, in the introduction to the sermon, the sit-ins by the NCANT students in Winston-Salem, et cetera. Well, there were pray-ins in Mississippi where, where uh, uh, black folk and allies were going to come to, to segregated white churches and pray out front and attempt to enter and, and desegregate the worship services. Our congregation was one of the places where we had people stationed at the doors to keep uh, African Americans from coming in. I have church members who remember seeing African Americans being turned away at the door. And when the Presbyterian Church U.S. adopted its 1954 General Assembly a, um, a statement criticizing segregation, the elders of my congregation in 1954 took out a full-page um, ad in the, in the state newspaper saying, we support segregation. So that's the, that's the reputation we had, okay? 
we deserved it, okay? Um, you know, the, uh, the, the judge that presided over Medgar Evers' um, murder trial was an elder at our congregation. The, state, the Supreme, state, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Mississippi during the Civil Rights era was an elder at First Presbyterian Church. You're getting why we had a reputation, right? Okay, so what happened? What, what happened? Why? I baptized the first adult and, chi and children, uh, African-Americans in our congregation as the pastor in the late 1990s, the first African-Americans in 100 years that had been in the church. The, the church was, of course, not segregated before the, the American Civil War, but at the end of the American Civil War, most churches in the South that had had both black and white members split. And so, you know, the Methodists sent, uh, you know, uh, you have the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the Presbyterians split, and there was a black Presbyterian church, et cetera, et cetera. That had happened. So all the black members, you can actually see the black role. They, they, kept, they kept a white role and a colored role in the church. And the colored role from 1865 to 1890 dwindles, 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 dwindles until they're down to nothing because there are no black folk joining the church. So I had the privilege of baptizing the first adult and child uh, black members in the, in the church in 100 years. So what happened between 1960-something and 1990-something? Well, several things happened. When Reformed Theological Seminary opened in 1966, we almost immediately started having African students come to the seminary and African-Americans come to the seminary. And often those students would come and visit the church. And people liked them. And I think people started thinking, how come we don't let these folks join the church? You know, these are our, these are our boys at the seminary. They're good folks. They believe in Jesus. They're wanting to spread the gospel. They're consecrated. They're earnest. They're godly. They're wonderful people. And I think, I think the seminary actually started changing the church by bringing people that were different to the church that were students and the, and the congregation instinctively loved them because they were seminary students and they didn't think about the racial thing. Except insofar as to say, maybe we've thought about this the wrong way. In 1973, one of the ruling elders who had been on the White Citizens Council in Jackson, that's bad, so if you have read the book the Help by Catherine Stockett or seen the movie, that's about my church. Catherine grew up at my church. Her family is from my church. There, might, there are people, Becky knows, she can tell you, people all through that book are in my church, okay? So if you're on the White Citizens Council, that's not a good thing for race relations, okay? So the el one of the elders that was on the White Citizens Council stood up at a session meeting in 1973, and he said, we have been wrong on this all along. And, and we've got to change. And, and, I, and I, he was also on, he was a board member at the seminary. And I think two things happened. One, he, he was meeting these seminary students, and they were godly and wonderful people. The other thing is the man who was the president of the seminary, Sam Patterson, he was a white country preacher, but he had no time whatsoever for racism. And John Perkins told me he was the one white 
minister in Mississippi that I could trust. He was the president of Reform Seminary. And I think Sam just discipled those board members into realizing that they had been wrong about all this. So I think those two factors were huge for my church because we had the students coming to the church and then our board members were being changed. The people that in our church that were board members were being changed by that encounter. And then when Mission Mississippi came along in 1990, we were, we were one of the sponsoring churches. So it, within a generation, the attitudes had completely changed. And, um, and then under my, under my successor, the congregation has actually publicly, explicitly repented for its sin and involvement in this area. So it's to, you know, it, it, it can take a long time sometimes to sort these things out. I tell people, this is a 400-year-old problem in America. We should not expect it you know, to get fixed like this. So that's the short story. Tell you the long story sometime, right? Yes, sir. Oh yeah. So you tell me the, the, the Ku Klux Klan. There's still a Klan. Um, and um, you know, it's, it, the Klan has gone through at least three recognizable um, stages uh, since its inception, but it's, it's still out there. It's, it's peripheral, but it still scares people. It still scares a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, we've been watching you know, the neo-Nazi stuff and the anti-Semitism in New York of all places, you know. So, I mean, it's every, you know, you can point all around the culture to see this kind of stuff out there. It's certainly on the fringes, but still enough to scare people and ruin people's lives. Yeah. Other questions? Well, thank you so much for your attention today. Thank you for letting me be here. Great to be with you.